0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for longtime listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you. By delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this.
1: Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an
0: immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said, that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing, and they wish they could be doing something as good.
1: So, from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this.
0: I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else.
1: So, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us.
0: So, if you're looking for an agency. That can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In this one, I speak to Miriam Hall, partner at Chartwell Consulting. From an early age, Miriam knew she wanted to make an impact, and it was her early entrepreneurial venture, Awesome Storage, that gave her a taste for both the business world and the importance of process and efficiency, something that would go on to be a key theme throughout her career. Fast forward, and having, in her words, been made available to the job market, Miriam took the opportunity to do something that very few early 20s consultants would. She launched her own operational improvement consulting firm, A business that would see her packing up her life in the UK to take on her first project at a laser manufacturing company in Estonia. This may sound a little crazy, but that period was the making of Miriam's early consulting career and what led to her ultimately joining Chartwell. It was her work with that business that led to a friend introducing her to the founding team of Chartwell Consulting, which she joined as the most junior member of the team back in 2014. Since then, Miriam has gone from strength to strength, climbing rapidly and making partner back in 2020. In this conversation, we explore her fascinating journey and talk about the many inflection points and crucial steps that have helped her get to where she is today. We talk about her decision to start her own consulting business, what she learned from that experience, and her advice to others thinking of doing the same. We dive deep into the secret sauce that Miriam uses with her clients to help them achieve productivity gains of up to 50% in less than six months. We explore the common issues that she sees and helps her clients solve to achieve this, and also look at how you can apply these same lessons to improve the efficiency in your own consulting firm. And lastly, we talk about, and she shares her candid take on the challenges that she faced being a new partner during the pandemic. We talk about how she found that period, how she was able to overcome what was quite a tough time and her advice to other new partners who may be struggling with similar pressures potentially to fill their sales pipeline or just adapting to that new role. We cover so much ground in this one, and there's something in here for everyone. Whether you are still at university and considering your options, or you're running your own consulting firm and want to know how you can make your operations more efficient, there's a ton of advice in this one, and I know you're going to love hearing what Miriam has to say. So with the intro over, all that's left to say is please sit back, relax, enjoy my conversation with Miriam Hall. Miriam, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Thank you for making the time on what is a lovely sunny day as well. Gorgeous, isn't it? It is. I'm quite glad that we have Aircon. Our client Numeritas has kindly lent us an office and the Aircon is working. That was my my big fear. So we are cool and comfortable for what is going to be a very good interview. And to start us off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, could you give an overview of, of your background and how you got to where you are today?
1: Perfect. So my name's Miriam Hall. I'm a partner with Chartwell Consulting, Chartwell is a specialist operations consultancy headquartered in London, but with offices in Zurich, Berlin, and Boston in the US. And we help clients principally in the manufacturing space make transformational improvements to their output or productivity, typically in the range of between 20 and 50% additional output within the space of between two and six months. Personally, I grew up in the north of England. I studied physics and philosophy at Oxford and went straight from there into a career in consulting, almost exclusively now uh, with Chartwell, where I joined in 2014
0: and recently, uh, about this time last year, been promoted and uh, to the partnership. Amazing. Well, that was a very succinct overview. And I I'm going to put it on my list, not for right now, but that statistic around, was it 30 to 50% in two to six months? 20 to 50 20 to 50%, yeah. 50% sorry. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated to pick up on that and we might do later just because I think many consultancies, and you know, I, I know this from when I was in the world, it's not always that easy to see the output and outcome. So the fact that you can confidently say that tells me there's something behind that that I want to dig into. You might stonewall me and say that's the secret source, but we'll we'll come back to that, Miriam. On the country, I want to talk about that as much <laughs> as I possibly can. <laughs> uh, well, we can we can definitely do that. I first, I want to start with, I guess, a bit earlier in your journey because you just mentioned there you've you've always been sort of following university in consulting, and. I'm always intrigued by sort of people's backstories. And one thing in yours is is actually your career hasn't only been in consulting because you started a business at university. And two things jump out for me within that. One, just having the confidence or self-awareness I guess the other you mentioned you're at Oxford, and from what I understand of universities like Oxford, it's quite an intense sort of academic schedule. You know, I, I went to York, fantastic university, but I got a lot of time to watch Jeremy Kyle, so you know, I, I had that space. But maybe you can you can sort of set the scene and, and you know tell us a bit about Awesome Storage, how it came to be, and the journey you went on with it.
1: Yeah, so you mentioned the short terms at Oxford and Cambridge, and and that's absolutely the case. You actually spend roughly half the year there and half the year back home, and certainly at my college, St. Hilda's, at the end of each term, you needed to remove all of your belongings and take them back to where you were from or find somewhere to store them in Oxford. And so by the start of third year, I'd done that whole in and out process, I think six times. And it all happens in a single week, right? There's the final week of term or the first week of term, and everyone's moving in or they're moving out. And I spotted an opportunity in that That meant that by offering a service where I'd take people's belongings basically from the college to Big Yellow Self Storage or somewhere like that, store them for the vacation and then bring them back again over a two-week window, basically for the sake of hiring a van for two days at the end of term and two days at the beginning of term, I'd be able to help a lot of people with storing their belongings. And by comparison to the people who are offering that commercially as kind of an overall service, undercut them quite a bit on, uh, on price. So that was the concept. And I guess, why did I think that I could do that? I guess no one had told me that I couldn't. <laughs> and yeah, so in the UK, we've got some fantastic structures in place to help people who want to set up their own business in terms of you can get advice that's, that's free to you in terms of making a business plan and, and, and getting a, a mentor. So I, I did that over the gap between second year and third year. I got that advice. I wrote a business plan. I had everything planned out and I did it for the Christmas holidays and the Easter holidays of that third year. After that, I decided to stop and focus on my studies. But uh, yeah, it was an incredible experience in terms of learning a lot about just what it takes to, to run your own business. There's a lot to think about.
0: I love it. And we will come on to how that's helped you with Chartwell today. In terms of, you mentioned sort of no one had told you you couldn't do it. Is that just the sort of person you've always been? You know, Were you the, the kid selling sweets in the playground that you'd bought at the corner shop, or was that the kind of first entrepreneurial venture for you?
1: It wasn't exactly the first. I had had a harebrained idea
0: while I was at school
1: that instead of it taking several weeks for someone to have their house redecorated, if we got half the school to go in, blitz the place... And then do the whole thing in a weekend. We'd be using up the free time of you know, the students that wanted a Saturday and a Sunday job. And we'd also be able to offer a, a, a kind of advanced service. I've got the whole business plan. I think I've still got that written somewhere. I think it was the One Weekend Decoration Corporation, something like that. But uh, that never went beyond the piece of paper.
0: I, I, I if this was a different podcast, I'd dive right in because I think that's a brilliant idea. Anyone with kids listening or any any younger listeners, I think sort of like changing, is it Changing Rooms the show used exactly. to be? Exactly. Yeah, just like Changing Rooms. Well, I think we're going to talk about your experience of lockdown later but over lockdown we had our house painted and I loved the painter a chap called Jamie was amazing but it took about four weeks and yeah after having not a family member in the house weeks, I'm done with this so I could see his 50 kids paint the whole thing leave let's talk about that afterwards I'm not going to derail you'll you'll realize I go off on a few tangents but what led you you know moving towards that consulting sort of career and, and the journey you've had like you did very well in the sciences like there's a sort of natural path to go somewhere like Oxford, go on and follow academia and I'm sure that was a route open to you. How did you decide to go into a business career because I say that feels like quite an important juncture in your journey, but for anyone listening as well that's quite a big decision. What was it about following business that for you was i guess the area you wanted to focus on and almost close the door on I assume what could have been that academic career? Yeah, so actually,
1: academia was never really the plan i had the ambition to to go get a good degree, but at that point, I wanted to have quite a tangible and direct impact on on the world around me and I think the impact that um, that scientists and I, I was a physicist so physicists in particular have it, it is immense, but it 's less direct than the kind of immediate answer that I wanted to give to some of the burning questions, specializing in particle physics uh, as as I did in my fourth year. It'll be a little while before the knowledge that we're currently acquiring about the tiniest components of matter will actually become really relevant for
0: new technology. That's you can't do the 20 to 50% in, in the six months with particle physics, I imagine. I don't think so,
1: no. So that was the main thing. It was, it was always that I wanted to have that really tangible and immediate impact. And I, and I felt like business generally, not consulting specifically, but business generally would, would be the best way to affect that. I guess what took me to consulting within the wider world of you know <laughs> commerce in general was I felt like it would offer me an accelerated path for whatever it was that I decided that I actually wanted to focus on and, and do. Having had that kind of intense crucible of experience in management and in different businesses would really help me accelerate and get to a point where I'd be able to have the maximum impact in, in the shortest possible time.
0: And was that something that, I guess, came to you as you did the degree or had you got that perspective starting it? The obvious question comes, what led you to do science as opposed to what you might call a more typical routine of a business and economics, you know, PPE degree at somewhere like Oxford?
1: Yeah. So as soon as I found out that it was possible to do a degree in physics and philosophy, there was actually no hope for me to do anything else whatsoever. I loved both of those subjects at school. The idea of really finding out at a fundamental level what's going on in the world. And I think both physics and philosophy do that at, at slightly different levels and are asking the same sorts of questions in slightly different ways. Yeah. As soon as I found out that, that was possible, that, that that was always going to be the course that I was going to do. I didn't have a, a clear plan as to what I was going to do after that. I just knew that a great degree like that would be very attractive to a number of different fields. And I didn't need to make that decision at that time that that would be a good decision, whatever I then decided to do.
0: Well, I, I think within that is some great advice for listeners. If you know, because- I'm sure many of our listeners have children and some of those will be approaching that university age and I think sometimes particularly now the cost has has gone up probably since you and I went to university there can be a I guess a drive to look for a sort of input equals output in terms of degree equals job and actually I think your story and you know, we'll get back to it the consulting side very soon is sort of testament to that fact that actually if you do something you enjoy and you do well at it, the, the doors open and, you know, who knew you'd go from particle physics to operations consultancy? You might tell me that's where all of the Chartwell partners have been. But that feels like a really good thing for people to take as well, of actually you don't have to go and do a finance degree to go and work in banking, let's say. Yeah, I think that's especially true in the UK. I think I work a lot in Germany. We we have
1: an, an office in in Germany and there you see a lot more people taking a degree which is very clearly directed at, at, at a potential career. I think in the UK, we're much more laissez-faire about, provided you've got a good degree and you've demonstrated that you've got that academic rigor and that you can do it, necessarily the connection between what you're going on to do and, and what you studied isn't so far.
0: Yeah, and no, I think really good point. And that, the point of other countries brings me on to actually another part of your journey, and I guess the earlier part of your journey, but we're starting to go into consulting here, Miriam, which is it just jumped out when we were talking ahead of this interview, You know that, that entrepreneurial side. You mentioned you decided to go off to Estonia and start your own consulting business. That led to me a whole load of questions. I, I'm not going to throw them all at you, but can you maybe set the scene for our listeners on where that came from and what led you out to do that?
1: Yeah. So I've been hired straight out of university by an operations consultancy, and I've been very, very firmly bitten by the bug. By that um, the, the kind of central, crucial idea. Unfortunately, it didn't work out at that firm. And I found myself made available to the job market a little bit uh, sooner and more unexpectedly than I'd uh, perhaps envisaged. And I took that knowledge and, and experience that I'd had from that relatively short stint um, with, with one operations consultancy. And I thought, do you know what? I can do this myself. I, I, I've got something to offer clients here myself. And I decided that was what I was going to do. Kitchen table, founded the company, made a logo, got the business cards printed, the whole whole thing. And I'm sorry, are you in Estonia at this point? No. So at this point I was in Clapham. And I reached out to basically my my whole fledgling network. And one of my former colleagues said, look, one of my course mates from, from university, is the CEO of a former Soviet laser lab in Tallinn, the capital of Estonia.
0: That's got to be the start of a spy thriller somewhere, doesn't it?
1: Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, having spent sort of nine months in London and then immediately moving to the former Soviet Union in Estonia, there wasn't a single one of my university friends who would believe me when I said I wasn't working for MI6, but (laughs) genuinely I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and you were, and just to, to to the place you were so relatively fresh out of university so sort of what 22 23 24 around there yeah okay so yeah it was I so think. it could have been like you say mi 6 i think yeah it could have been it wasn't but carry on so
1: this former soviet laser lab they had a, a really fantastic product which uses laser light to detect whether there's been an oil spill in places like ports and harbors Apparently, it's relatively common practice that if they need to clean the diesel tanks or or the fuel tanks, a um, less scrupulous shipping company will take on board a lot of seawater and then just splurge the water that they've used for cleaning the tank straight out into the, into the harbor with very negative environmental effects. This device would allow the port to be able to detect that almost immediately and um, to take the firstly, you know, in the same way that a speed camera has the effect of making everyone drive more to the speed limit, even if it doesn't catch anyone. It's that, a good deterrent on it's the a, ports, It's a, yeah. a, good, a good deterrent. And also then if someone did do it, you'd be able to follow that up. And they wanted to ramp up production. They were expecting a, a big surge in demand. And um, we got in touch with each other. We were, we were able to hash out a deal. And with a three-month contract in hand, I never having visited Estonia in my entire life before, not really knowing anyone there, just up sticks and, and moved myself out to, out to Tallinn for six months.
0: The answer may be what you said around awesome stories, but when that call came, did you have any concerns, any thoughts, any kind of nervousness about picking up your life and just going to another country? Or was it no one told you you couldn't, so you thought, why not? So I think picking up my life
1: and moving to another country, that for whatever reason didn't phase yeah. me at all. I, was- I still am. Incredibly passionate about learning about other cultures, learning about other languages, and I find that by far the best way to uh, to do that is to jump headfirst in and immerse yourself in the culture and the and the language and uh, and and find out about it that way. I think I did have a a good degree of trepidation of would I be able to do this? Would I be able to deliver what I promised uh, David, the client, uh, out in out in Estonia? But excited to to, to try and 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 see where I got to
0: just cuz I think it would be interesting for others thinking about doing this cuz you know one of the things that has definitely become more prominent and I think for better or worse is that kind of entrepreneurialism has become cool you know when when you were doing this that was probably a slightly alternative you know approach like i think probably the last 10 15 20 years i don't i don't know when you did this by the way but i think particularly in the kind of social media generation it is now very cool to be an entrepreneur. But I'd love to know in setting that up you mentioned you had a business plan you had a proposition. Actually how did you go about creating that because having just 9 months of consulting experience you know I speak to people who have been in industries for 10, 20 years and they say "Oh Nick I'd love to do this but why would anyone buy me? What's my unique proposition? Why would I be different?" I know I'm, ta- I'm taking you back a bit but I would just love to know kind of how you approach that and your mindset for anyone thinking of doing similar. So I think I had a really
1: clear idea of, of of what the USP would be, and it comes back to the twenty to fifty percent that we were talking about earlier. I think the trend, actually, with all my businesses, be it the weekend decoration or or, or awesome storage, is or now Chartwell, is um seeing an opportunity where there's a fundamental operations process where there's a underutilization or a gap in utilization of an asset or a commodity or whatever it is that then can be leveraged to expand into a into a niche and, and to deliver a service at a, at a better price than anyone else is able to offer because you've got that leaner operation. And I think even with a relatively small amount of consulting experience, I, I deeply understood what were the things I would need to be looking for to find those kinds of opportunity, not to get the two to three percent optimization, but to get the 20, 30 percent step change, because you just you've changed the game. And having that as a, a really clear, unique selling point, and you know, as someone at that level of experience, a, a clear idea of what price point I wanted to be offering that service at. I think that gave me the confidence that this was something that the value that I could offer would so far outweigh the cost of my services that that gave me confidence that there must be a market.
0: And uh, and there was, so that was good. (laughs) You're proof right. And this might just not have been something that crossed your mind, but that inherent confidence you talk about, you know, it's clear, like you say, I have the proposition and a bit like you mentioned with Awesome Storage earlier, almost if it's the same proposition, but 50% cheaper, let's say it's, it's a no brainer. Was there ever a, that sort of imposter syndrome concern you had? Because, you know, I, yeah, I'm sure I've felt it before others. I know, you know, been doing things for 10 years, for 20 years, feel it. And I'm conscious you had. I want to come on to how how you got all the experience, but you, you had nine months before, and I loved your phrase. You you were made available to the market. Was that ever a concern, or was it like you say you just you felt you had done enough? You understood it. You understood the value you could provide, and th- therefore you were comfortable. Or was that ever something? You know, when you were flying off to Estonia to be the head of process improvement for the laser company, did that ever cross your mind? And how did you deal with it if it did? It certainly did.
1: I think I've always been a very driven person, and I was very keen, I think within myself to show that this was something that I could do and I could succeed in and that I wanted to prove that. And I think for myself, that force was probably just a a greater force within me than the fear and the, and the imposter syndrome and and worrying about, well, well, could I do it? There was an element of I felt like I had to
0: and that meant that I was, I was going to do it and come hell or high water. I love the drive from that. And I think to your point, particularly when you're young, I know I had similar drive, albeit I went into a state agency and it, it, it didn't end up so well, but it, I've lived to tell the tale. So it couldn't have all been bad. It's not quite as exciting. There were no lasers, I must say, some dodgy flats in uh, West London, but that's as far as I got. Um, but I know what you mean, that kind of, I guess there is an element of within that, the why you are doing something as well, because to yeah, and these are my assumptions. You not asking whether you agree or disagree to me, but I'm I'm interested in your thoughts of I think now entrepreneurship's so cool. Some people do it to, yeah, you know, I'll start a consultancy. To start a consultancy, show I have. It's almost like a, you know, it used to be cars, now it's entrepreneurship. Whereas I think to your point, having that inherent drive to start your own business is what led you there. And that's not to say that those who work for consultancies now that there's no better or worse. It's just, it's a different approach. And I think that you, the passion there highlights, there's that drive that you need to do your own thing. Otherwise you might not get on the plane to Estonia and go out to the client that, you know, leads on to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think the other thing that I had
0: at that point was,
1: you know, you could look at it the other way, right. And say, well, I've just been made available to the market. Perhaps I'm, not very good at this thing. Perhaps that's a sign that I should give up. And actually, I think my experience up to that point had been that everything that I'd really wanted. I never got first time like Oxford. I had to take another year, interview again. They turned me down the first time. Various other things like that, getting knocked back and then trying again and and actually then ultimately being very successful with that thing was an experience I'd had multiple times in the past.
0: And I think that was another thing that gave me a degree of confidence that that, that it was worth a shot. And is that something you think carried you through the rest of you know, up to now? That sort of journey will come on to Chartwell in a moment, but is that something that's always stayed with you? That kind of, I know if I keep doing what I know, it's going to work out. Is that just something that you think has held and helped you as you go, you've gone through your career so far? Absolutely. And I, th- I think there's not a blind faith that it's going to
1: work out, but that there's that history and that experience that actually sometimes things take two or three tries before they're genuinely very successful. And that being able to have that learning experience, get knocked down, but actually dust yourself off again and and go at it again is one of the things that those are parts of the ingredients of success. You know, we talked about science earlier, that that's the scientific method to an extent, right? You try something several times and you see what the results are. And uh, yeah, I think that perseverance
0: is, is, is essential to a lot of business. Just because I can't think of how we're going to talk about this before we go sort of anywhere else in the show. I do just want to ask, and this might just be in terms of, you know, you're just very good at learning and studying, but I think this is particularly for anyone who either wants to learn about your sort of area of consultancy or just a specialism you, know, you mentioned in your first organization you've been there about nine months you know that that's not a long time to learn an approach to consulting how to deliver the savings you talked about how did you learn it so fast so i think on reflection
1: i probably hadn't uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I you're think- one page ahead of the client that's all you need to be isn't it my estimation of my understanding and abilities uh, was, was, was probably at that time considerably higher than the, uh, than the actual facts. I think there are a few really core basic concepts ar- around the utilization of assets and, and in particular around bottlenecks in a manufacturing process, which it would take you a very long time to work them out in theory from a piece of paper. But once someone tells you what they are, you're like, oh, well, that's quite straightforward. And just being kind of ruthless and relentless at applying those principles and concepts can be a big factor in in, in getting a big result. So I think that aspect, I certainly felt like I understood. And I think looking back at that bit, I did understand there's a lot, lot more, which I think I've benefited a great deal from being within Chartwell and, and having the experience of the the founding partners around me. to. to share that and
0: help me learn that and uh, and grow that just because you've talked about it there miriam and i said we would come to it so i did a little bit of operations consulting back when i was in consulting and you teed it up there with there's sort of some secret sauce you know some things that once you know they sort of they unlock you know those efficiencies in assets and production and i'm sure it's not purely things that can be applied to manufacturing i'm sure it can be applied to others so i I'd love to know what they are. You know What, what are those, you know, when you go into an organization or a manufacturing um, plant, what are those things where you're like, change these, that'll be a 50% in six months. You know, what, what are those core elements that time and time again, you find solving unlocks that efficiency? So it varies a lot, industry to
1: industry. But if I take an example of a, a client that I, I'm getting the train up to this, uh, this afternoon, they are in food manufacturing. And if you imagine a bottle filling line where you're just filling up bottles and you've got a number of different processes and they're all linked together, right? So you've got to make the bottles, then you've got to fill the bottles up with the liquid, then you've got to put a cap on the bottle, then you've got to put a label on the bottle, then you've got to collect them together into a six pack. And then you've got to put the six packs onto a pallet so that pallet can go to the customer. So you've got all of these machines chained in a line. And one of those machines is the bottleneck. It's the one that is holding up all of the others. So that means that instantly, once you've found out which one that is, you've simplified the problem from there being ten machines with a hundred problems each to one machine with its hundred problems. And then, if you're looking at that single machine, the secret source, as you as you spoke about, I'd say is, is buffers, because at the moment. What you see very often, and I think it's a misinterpretation of the lean methodology in that work in progress is waste. And what you'll often see is if you would have a buffer immediately before and after that machine. And just for our listeners, a buffer is? Somewhere for the bottles to accumulate in the state that they're in before they go into the next machine. So for example, if your bottleneck is the filling machine, if you could have the empty bottles Basically, a table for them to go and sit on so that if then the bottle maker machine would stop, the filling machine, which is your bottleneck, can continue to operate, continue to run, even though that machine has stopped. What you very often see is if any of the machines in the chain stops, they all stop. And if you think you've got 10 machines in the chain, each of them runs 90% of the time, and you're like, 90% of the time, brilliant. That's really going, really going well. But then if you multiply, the 90% times 90% times 90% times 90%, you very, very quickly get to the region where actually the line as a whole is operating 20% efficiency, something like that. And The simple act of protecting your bottleneck by putting accumulation either side of it, a buffer either side of it, can give you a drastic increase in the amount of output that
0: you get. So that's why? Because that sounds quite counterintuitive and I... And I, I, having done a little bit of lean sort of consulting and training in, in my journey, I think, like you said, the kind of lean, yeah, as it, and a purest sense, is no work in progress, keep things going. Batching is bad. In my head, that says you're going to have hundreds of bottles one side, and at some point you'll have hundreds of bottles the other. Well, how does that help the kind of the bottleneck machine?
1: Yeah, so you're protecting it from if one of the other machines stops. So. If one of the machines is stopped, and then it immediately starves the bottleneck machine, then the bottleneck is stopped, even though it's another machine which has a problem and is broken. And the same downstream, right? If the bottleneck machine can't produce anymore, because it's got nowhere to put what it's made, because the next machine is broken, then immediately it will also have to stop. Whereas if you can protect it, so that either the upstream machines or the downstream machines can have A small problem. Yeah. If they're going to be out for a day because the drive shaft is broken and we don't have a spare, then that's not going to work. Right. Then the whole line is going to go down. But actually, if it's just you've got to change the reel on the labels, right? You've run out of those labels. You need a new reel. That machine needs to stop for two minutes. Actually, those two minutes really add up. And if the bottleneck can continue producing during that time, it can have a transformative effect on on performance.
0: Fascinating. So almost the old adage of go as fast as the slowest member of the team or the slowest machine is is, is incorrect. So you'll never be able to go any faster than that. But if you protect the slowest, protect member, the slowest member of the and team, you
1: make sure that they can walk all of the time. And the fast members, they, they can run ahead and they can... Then have a sit down and a break. But if you just make sure that that one is protected and nothing ever gets in the way of them being able to walk, except when they themselves need a rest, in in this example, out on a hillside. (laughs) Thank you for running with my metaphor (laughs) as well. Then that's the essential to getting more output out. Now, that's one example from the fast moving consumer goods industry. In a chemical plant, some of the same principles apply, but you'd also be looking at a much strong, a batch chemical plant, for example, you'd be looking at a much stronger application of the the SMED process. So basically asking four questions about every single step in the cycle. Do we need to do this thing? Can we do this thing outside of the cycle of this reactor? Can we do this thing in parallel with something else that's going on? And then the last question, can we do it faster? And you just go through every single step in the process ask those four questions and you'd be amazed at what you find out when you ask those simple questions.
0: And to the point around sort of, I guess, broadening it out, does that apply equally if it's a people business, a services business? I appreciate you probably can't let stuff pile up on, you know, whoever is its desk, or maybe you can, maybe you know, if you've got a bottleneck person, do you follow a similar approach, keep them working and that SMED or are there other things that help that? Because I think that's again, where just from my own experience, the kind of the drive for efficiency can sometimes be seen by boards, but also the, the people doing it as a bit of a negative a kind of, oh, the consultants are here, they're just going to make me sweat. And, you know, if I was filing 10 things, I'll now file 20 things. Actually, how does this translate? And is it possible to unlock that level of improvement in, in people-led businesses as well? It absolutely
1: is. I've, I've got two clients at the moment, which are, which are very people-process-based. And absolutely, a lot of the same tools come into play. And Actually, that SMED process and asking those questions like, do we need to do it, can have really profound effects. I can think of a people-led process that, that we were working with a few years ago, where there was a quirk in the way that the system was set up, such that if you wanted to print an invoice, you could press the print button. and What that did was it immediately sent the invoice to the printer. But things had moved on since the system had been installed, and clients wanted their invoices by PDF. And how we did that in this client was we printed it, we walked over to the printer, we scanned it, we emailed the scan to ourselves, and then we sent that by email to the client. And it sounds daft, but what is the person who's doing that process able to do to change the process that they're working within, except tell their boss, this perhaps is something that we shouldn't be doing when there are hundreds of things that they're telling their boss that they shouldn't be doing. So identifying that that one thing was saving was costing nearly a forest worth of trees, along with five or 10 people basically doing that full time when you added it up over the office of a hundred people meant that we were able to put a very clear business case together, go quickly to IT and being like, can we have a print to PDF button, which we got in two weeks, Stop the um, unnecessary walking, Stop the unnecessary use of the trees and drastically improved the process for, for that business. And I think it's important to go in with that mindset. Let's make the people who are running these process lives easier and let's have that be the foundation of the savings that we're going to get, not just with the mindset of, okay, this process should take 10 minutes You've done it in 15 minutes. There needs to be a a stick here. That's also important. You need that process control, but actually, fundamentally, this process takes 10 minutes. How could it take five minutes for everyone all the time is a much better question to ask in terms of getting the value and also getting people on site.
0: I think a great example, and, and I think to your point as well, so often we blame people, you know, the invoice processor, they're slow because they take 15 minutes and actually... Like you've said in that example, a simple process fix instantly improves their productivity. I imagine also their their happiness if they're not having to... I mean, I'd, probably they now need to go and exercise differently because I imagine you do a few steps going up and down to the printer. But I think there's also something in that, and and you can tell me better, but... Examples like that, you know, when someone's listening to this will will feel obvious because, you know, the kind of, oh, yeah, we wouldn't do that. But I I imagine there's so many of those in the virtual world today where, yes, it's not, you know, as as obvious as I print and scan, but actually how much move from this spreadsheet to that spreadsheet, send this to this person, actually looking at that process as a whole, you probably can find some of those, but they're just not as obvious. I suspect that happens as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. I've got a client at the moment. One of the main parts
1: of one of the roles is moving documents from... It's actually downloading documents from a system, saving them to their desktop, and then uploading them to another part of the same system. And if you can find ways to maybe make those two bits of the system talk to each other, then that's very valuable. But you've got to understand, because there are hundreds of things like that. It's just the case that this one is worth 15, 20 times more than the next one and being able to communicate that and the urgency is where a lot of the real value comes
0: from you've hit on a really poignant point because that links back you know when you talked about the machine example that one in you know, the bottling plant machine is the problem you hone in on that and i know it was a was an example but that's quite easy in commas to see because there's 10 machines one's obviously slow so we, we dive into that and this might be the secret sauce. And to your point, how do you hone in on what is that bottling machine? Or is that, yeah, because that feels like to what you pointed out, you could fix hundreds of these things, but if they're not the right thing, you're not going to fix anything. How do you hone in in a services business on, on what that is? For me, it's it's exactly the
1: same as what you do in a manufacturing business. So unfortunately for the listeners, it
0: won't be oh, so anyway, clear. This as a video podcast. We'll it get there, Miriam.
1: It won't be so clear, but I've got my notes from last Thursday here where I've spent... Two hours standing by the side of a production line, just writing down what's happened every single minute for two hours. And that's something that I, as a partner in the business will still do that I see as absolutely part of my job and absolutely important and valuable to have the real facts about what's actually happening on the ground. And what I would do in the people business would be absolutely the same thing. Sit down and spend two, three hours with someone as they do their day, as they do the process and go about their normal business and just understand what's going on and ask those key questions. Do we actually need to do that? Could we be doing this in a more straightforward or simple or efficient way? And that unlocks a lot of potential. Now, obviously you can't just take a three hour window and say, okay, well, we're going to extrapolate that. And we're going to say that's what their entire year looks like on the basis of three hours that I've spent sat with them. But what that will allow you to do is corroborate the data. So in a people-based business, they'll be using some kind of system. Very often you can get timestamps out of that system and gain an understanding of, okay, how many invoices have we sent out in the last year? How many labor hours have we put into the invoicing process? And if we compare those two things, we can see, okay, well, on average, it takes an hour to send an invoice. But when I did my observations, it took 15 minutes. How do we account for the difference? What are the things that go wrong with the process that means that it takes longer? And that are that opportunity then that you can get that uh, additional output and uh, and productivity from an existing team without just sweating
0: them and pressing the lemon. Some really key points in there. It kind of brings us back to the, I guess your journey with Chartwell and, you know, as you highlighted, we'll come on to sort of, I guess your role as partner because like you say, it's fascinating to hear that you're kind of as much leading the business as you are, like you say, sort of doing that level of analysis with your clients. Just to close this bit off and particularly given you are a consultancy that specializes in this. I'm sure you've done this to yourselves as you've grown. And, you know, this might be like, was it a painter's house or a busman's uh, (laughs) holiday? You know, you'll tell me that, or you might not want to tell me this all a mess internally. But I'd just be really fascinated from from kind of the work you have done was thinking about that journey over, you know, the time chart was being around. What was the process that actually you found as a firm was burning time, you know, was inefficient that actually has unlocked... The greatest benefit, and if the answer is we started it really well and we've kept it going really well, I'll I'll accept that. But what for yourselves when you've done this has been that actually, if other consultancies fix this, you know that will be a really big time saving for them.
1: So I can think of two, and I I think to your point, it's very frequently that I look at our internal process and I say, "Goodness gracious!" If this was a client's process, I would uh, I would have a lot of recommendations for how they can improve it. Uh, So one is. That, you know, we've grown from a, a business that when I joined it was seven people, four of them partners to now being over 60 people spread across four different offices ac- across the world. And I think one of the transitions that, that we needed to make and that I think a lot of consultancies who are going through that journey and, and, and changing size like that is actually there comes a point when. It's no longer appropriate to have every partner involved in every decision. And you need to delegate some responsibilities and you need to say that, okay, that area, training, for example, that's one of the partner's responsibilities. And whatever happens, they are enabled to make the decisions in that space. And the rest of the partners are going to trust them to make the right decisions and not interfere if they've made a decision which perhaps they would have. Made it differently because you need that independence and, and to de link those things. So I think that was a real driver for our productivity and, and ability to get stuff done internally. And the second was investing in the proper systems. Yeah. We are all very good at Excel and we had great joy and pleasure in building very complicated Excel spreadsheets that would calculate our invoices and calculate who needed to be where, when, and these sorts of things. And actually, putting in place
0: a proper system that could back that up was a lot of effort, but I believe it was well worth it. Two great examples. And I think that the second one, I laugh because it, it does amaze me you know, what we do in marketing, the the amount of firms where we speak to them, the, the CRM system is a spreadsheet. I think we'll probably touch on the first one, actually, as we talk through your journey with Chartwork, I, I'm really interested in when that inflection point for the partnership came in that sort of to your point that kind of delegation but let's pull us back to to your journey and almost like you said you you joined as I, I think one of the most junior consultants when you were seven people and that's you know that's kind of a small family you know 60 is a large tribe or you know where I live a small village but that's, that's a lot of people you know you, you don't know everyone and and not in a bad way just as you grow you know that relationship changes but I'd love to I mean, a bit of a whistle stop, but understand your journey with the firm because going from you know, junior consultant to partner is, is not something that many people do. So maybe yeah, take me on the journey of kind of how has that time been and any particular sort of inflection points, either in size or in terms of your sort of stepping up to different grades that have really had, a, had an impact on you? Yeah. So
1: I joined the firm when we had the, the four founding partners, all of whom had at least 10 years uh, consulting experience under their belt, most of them with more like 25. And then there was me, John and Lawrence, who were less than a year out of university, all of us. So that was an incredible opportunity because that meant that throughout my entire career, I've had direct access, direct coaching and direct mentoring by someone who's got that much more experience and that much more knowledge in the industry than I have. So I jumped into the German side of the business. I didn't speak a word of
0: German at the time and I was immediately deployed. So was this three languages at the time? I know you speak four now. Was German the fourth or have I... No, German was the third. The third. Okay.
1: So I learned French at school and then spent some time in France and Senegal before university. And then from knowing absolutely nothing was dumped onto well, dumped, had the wonderful opportunity to join a project at a coffee capsule manufacturer right. in Switzerland where they only spoke German. There were a couple of people that spoke decent English, but by and large, everyone spoke German. so I needed both to learn what I was supposed to be doing and, and how to be an effective operations consultant in that environment, as well as the basics of trying to communicate. More or less anything to the client team, so that project was highly successful. I then spent more time as a as a consultant in Bavaria at a factory that makes synthetic fibers for uh, clothes and uh, car upholsteries and that was kind of the first inflection point and the first point where going from being the person who's delivering the results to overseeing and managing firstly a team from our side but Really leveraging the client's team to to get the the largest scale of results that's that's possible. And I think again, there's an element of serendipity in the how that change, how that transition came about. In that, I went on a wonderful holiday to um, to India for two weeks in the in the November of that year, and I came back. And one day after we landed, the Delhi Belly hit. So. I was out of commission completely for a couple of days, but the two weeks after that, I was really weak. And that kind of gave me permission to delegate actions in a way that I'd never really felt like I had the right before. So I did the absolute bare minimum needed to keep the project running, telling people to get on with stuff, directing them, saying what the priorities were. And at the end of the two weeks, I was back fighting fit, full, firing on all cylinders. And I looked at what we'd achieved in that two weeks and I thought, we've got more done in this last two weeks with me doing the absolute bare minimum than we have in the entirety of the rest of the project. Perhaps there's something in this delegation malarkey. Perhaps I should look into this a bit more thoroughly rather than running around doing everything myself and, and feeling like I didn't have the right. Because the client's obviously paying a good amount of money for my services I'm supposed to be helping them and I'm not wanting to bother them with the tasks and the things that we needed to hit the goals that we wanted but to actually kind of changing that mindset and being like, no, actually for this to be sustainable, for this to be really owned by the client, they need to be the ones putting it in place. And I need to be doing more of that coaching and direction and less of the actual doing myself because that's what's going to really move the needle.
0: I think a great story, and like you say, rather serendipitous. So just for me to clarify when you talk about team, that was a chartwell and a client team. And so when you talk about not having the right, was that for both parts or was that more the client side in your mind? where Where did that not having the right sort of yeah manifest in in your mind? So at that point, it was entirely
1: a client team, so we we had a large department in the factory that we were attempting to in- increase the uh, productivity of. Our target was 30% and we had seven client team members who were dedicated to the project to, to a lesser or greater extent. So we had one of the operators, marvelous guy called Carabas, um, who was on the project team full-time. Then we had some people like from the quality department, perhaps only 10% of their time, but we had that resource available to us. And I think certainly for the people who we had perhaps 20% of their time, I think previously up to that point, I was probably only using five and only giving myself permission because they're very busy people, managers within a fast-moving business. I didn't feel like I had the right to bother them when it was something I could do myself. And it was only at those points where I absolutely had to involve them to get something done, that's when I would do it. And actually that I found was not the most effective way to get them engaged, to get them excited and and to really make the results of what we put into place sustainable. Because it might be that I've got this perfect idea of the 100% solution in my head, but actually the solution, which isn't quite perfect, but is owned by them, that they have come up with it themselves and they
0: really want to put it in place. That's going to be a much, much better result. I think it's a great point and and probably some great advice for anyone listening who's sort of climbing in, in their career. And obviously the the way you've told the story and I like it. Sort of, there's an epiphany moment. And from from then on you were transformed as this, you know, phenomenal delegator. And I for anyone listening and and to sort of your journey, how did you keep that up? How did you, I guess, build that muscle to say, no, I am gonna delegate and build that into your way of working? Because I suspect for people listening, that might be a question of this sounds great for you but how do I actually sustain that as an approach?
1: I by no means perfect in that regard. <laughs> e, even up to this day I'll still have that urge to roll the sleeves up and uh, to do uh, some more of it myself. I think at various points, you know, I've had the the benefit of of having some fantastic managers over that time frame and uh, a gentle reminder from them and on occasions not so gentle. Was a really helpful way to to make sure that i was focusing on that and had once you've built up enough evidence that that really is the most effective way at that point it becomes internalized and i think if you've got that reminding voice and that gentle stare that can be very effective in in making sure that uh, once you've had an epiphany you can you can stick to it
0: now i, I think a really good point and i, I i'm going to come on to that you mentioned around the, the mentorship and and this sort of talks a bit to your the length of time you've been with Chartwell as well. It's quite unusual in today's age. You know, it's not completely uncommon, but a lot of people will, you know, move after a few years. And I think the really interesting element is actually the firm's speed of growth because I know people who will stay at a firm where you know, it grows, but not sort of that exponential, you know, seven to sixty. And I'd just be really interested in in almost how you navigated that or how you'd recommend others do because like you say, when there's three of you and four partners, you know you're in effect you've got four mentors between three of you. So what's that? A sort of one and a bit of a mentor each, give or take. Your maths is probably better than mine, being a physicist. But as you grow as a firm, there's going to naturally be a point where there's more of your junior peers than there are partners. And so you're, you know, you could assume that mentorship ratio decreases. And that's where I think often people will feel, oh well, I'm not. It's not like it used to be. Did you ever need to get yourself comfortable with that change? And if you did, how how did you approach that journey throughout the growth to still see the value you were getting from the firm and not, I guess, feel sort of disenfranchised because, oh, well, when it was seven of us, we used to do this, but now we're 60, we've got to do something different. How, how did you manage that yourself? Because I think that's, a, again, a really interesting element of you know a journey like yours where there is that growth.
1: Yeah. So I think I, I was exceptionally lucky in actually having made the decision to go and support the German business. Because that meant that the partner out there, uh, my good friend Avold, he and I were working in very, very close concert for the first four years of my of my career. I was entirely doing projects in either Switzerland or Germany, working directly with Avold and directly under Avold. So, because we had a fantastic working relationship. And because that was always direct, there was never any question during that period that the new people coming into the business were anything other than people for me to help guide and coach and, and to help learn there was never a question about anyone kind of coming in between us and that causing the type of um, disenfranchisement that you uh, alluded
0: to earlier. It sounds like, and and this might just be really, you've been quite lucky in some of these instances. And 100%. I mean, hey, yeah, I'm not going to begrudge you luck, but I, I wonder, are there any elements in that journey with Chatwell that, that haven't gone so well? And almost, how did you find yourself having to, I guess, push through those? Because it might have just been all smooth sailing, but I'm sure it hasn't. Well, it definitely hasn't been. And, you know, the,
1: the flip side of that coin of being one of the most senior juniors and there always being that gulf between you and the partners. On one side, that's an incredible development opportunity and there are no shoes to, that need to move up and uh, for you to step into, be able to step up into them. There's always that headroom, always that space to, to, to grow. But on the other side, you're always at the bleeding edge of, something has never happened before it needs to be invented especially for you and that's always going to be slightly behind the curve of where you're actually at and even further behind the curve of where you think you are and you know there's been cases in in the firm's growth where that waiting for for things to catch up and waiting for a new structure to be developed has been difficult and put me uh, in a space where wondering whether sticking with the firm and, and and continuing is is actually going to be the best thing i think in every instance once the solution was found and and put into place that that answered those questions and 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 kind of saved the thing but uh yeah it absolutely there's been points where i have felt that disenfranchisement i haven't felt like my contribution had been recognized at the at the level that it should be and those, I think, are were the points that I was looking around and and uh, wondering, you know, are, are there other options?
0: And this might be advice you give to your team now. It, it might have been things that the, the partners did for you as you were coming up. But for anyone who's experiencing that themselves, you know, what, what advice would you give them in terms of how to approach it internally? Because, yeah, I think that's it's often those difficult times that are the hardest to talk to someone about it or put your head up. And that's where it can seem very easy just to jump firm when that might not be the right move for you. So yeah, how, either how did you, or how do you advise others to approach that to kind of flag where things are going wrong and how to fix them? So
1: clear communication is, uh, is the thing that I'd really
0: advise. I
1: think it's happened to me in the past as a manager, when someone has come to me very unhappy and They've then said, you know, things have gone too far. This is how it is. I'm leaving. And actually, the problems that they've brought up and the uh, and the things that obviously should never have been allowed to get to that stage. But actually, I as a manager had had no idea that that was going on, and I'd have been I was mortified to hear how upset they'd been and 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 the difficulties they'd been having. But if I'd known about them. I could have done something about them and perhaps I should have been more prescient and more empathetic and been able to work out for myself that the, that something was awry. But I think if, if you can and you've got someone that you've got that relationship with, where you feel like you can go to them and you can say, look, this is the situation. There's this thing where I'm not happy. And these are the reasons that I'm not happy. Then you've at least given. The firm and the, the the people you're working with the opportunity to, to to try and fix it. In some instances, that's just not going to be possible. Yeah, we've got example from the from the past from within Chartwell, for example, of of someone who wanted to be home every single night, and that just wasn't something that we were able to promise would be the case with needing to support clients on site. And if it's a bottling machine, and you can't see the bottling machine, it's much more difficult. Uh, not impossible, but it's much more difficult to, uh, to, to generate the change and generate the improvement. So there's going to be instances where you can't work those things out. But in other instances, perhaps it's a simple misunderstanding or something has been set up without a structure. It's been allowed to drift in a certain direction. It turns out that that direction is very negatively influencing one of the team, but You've got no idea, and you also think that perhaps they're empowered to change it. So the fact that it hasn't changed is an indication to you, well, okay, it must be fine because otherwise, so and so would have said something. I think if if you can make that clear communication, that's going to be the best route.
0: I think a great point, Miriam, and and like you say, I think it's we all do it. It's easy to think that others are being malicious to us for whatever reason. I can't remember. I think it's a Tim Ferriss quote, but it was, uh, don't blame on you know, malice, what can be attributed to busyness. And I, I think you know, that sticks with me all the time because we all do it, you know, down to "Oh, so-and-so hasn't replied to my email, you know, are they ghosting me or have I done something? But I think like you say, in a sort of manager, you know, team member context, particularly when you're a smaller consultancy, sort of boutique consultancy, everyone's there to help each other. And something else I want to turn to, and I, I think We've talked about your career journey as a as a whole, and there's there's an inflection point, and I'll kind of let you take this as you see fit. But I always think that that step to partner is an interesting step, if you like. And I think one of the biggest shifts is around you go from call it a sort of delivery person, you're an expert, you're doing to actually you're you're running the business, and part of that means you're selling work, you're winning work. And I'd be really interested. I know you talked about kind of there was a time in the pandemic where this sort of all was brought home to you quite a lot. And I just love to understand, you know, tell me about that time and, and actually how you overcame it. Because I think that is a really big inflection point for some partners when suddenly it's not all smooth sailing. So I know we talked about it before, but could you, for our listeners, set the scene and kind of, yeah, talk about that journey for yourself.
1: Yeah, so I guess from that point where you know I mastered the art of delegation in inverted commas, uh, I realised it was an option. I think is more uh, more accurate, and I'd, I'd run a a couple of projects more in Switzerland, and then took on responsibility for a whole engagement with one of our large German chemical clients. I had quite a natural transition from just finding additional opportunities within a, a given site where we could help a bit more and helping the client to understand that there might be a cost associated with that, to getting references, warm referrals into clients that we hadn't worked with before. And and that kind of expanded in in quite a natural way from just delivering to being in that kind of sales and finding new clients role. And that happened all quite, quite naturally. Until in March of 2020, we went from a position as a business where we had 90% of our consultants build out with firm pipeline and expectation for the next three to six months of the revenue that we were expecting from them to within a single week going to having perhaps one or two consultants globally who were able to continue their work because they were supporting key industries and they were supporting the output of a, a food factory, for example, and therefore were considered key workers and could continue on site. And I think dealing with that as someone who perhaps in that in their entire career up to that point had maybe three or four weeks where I hadn't had client work and hadn't been out help, helping the clients to going to a situation where I was in a small flat just south of the river in London with me and my partner and nothing from a client perspective that I could be doing and could, and could be helping with. And that I think is something that is going to happen in a less extreme way, probably. But, um, <laughs> you know, th- those leaner periods are, are going to happen to anyone in the consulting business and, unless they're very, very lucky at some point in their careers. And I think being able to refocus, come back to your USP and, uh, and what exactly it is that you want to help clients with, understanding, well, okay, at this time, in this moment, who will be needing that kind of service and reaching out to them and retaining the faith, you know, that you've done that great work in the past. You've got those relationships with people. They might not even need you right now, or in this instance, actually be able to use your services right now, but coming back to that and and having that self-assurance that it is just a dip and, and that it is going to come out to the other side and, and, keeping doing the things that need to be done to make that possible and to enable that. I don't think it's easy. I think from a mental health perspective, it's a tricky one. But switching to you know, perhaps a more activity-based way of evaluating your performance and saying, right, if I have done these things, then that's still a good day. And that's still me adding value and doing the best I can for the firm. And for myself, then I think that's one way to,
0: to to cope with it. I think there's some fascinating points there, and, and to what you said, that mental health side as well, because particularly in an industry where like, it's client focused, you're working, you're your value to the industry, but you know part of that your self worth is on client deliverables. Like you say, when suddenly you're on the bench, there's that almost. Um, well, I'd be fascinated. With what was your self talk, and almost how did you get yourself into the mindset of? no, Miriam, this is fine. We're now going to shift our, a successful day is not the analysis of the bottling plant. A successful day is emailing 10 clients. What was that self-talk at that time? And how did you make that shift in your mind?
1: So I, I'm not sure I did a wonderful job of it. So I think that needs to be uh, borne into consideration. I think there's an inherent tension and, and almost an aspect of double think that's required in having a proper internal locus of control where you're saying that what happens in the world is I'm able to influence it and it's my responsibility to make sure that what happens is the way it should be and not having that kind of victim mindset of, oh, something has happened. Well, there's nothing that we could have done about that. That's not in our control. I think one of the things that's been tremendously valuable to me through my career is having an internal locus of control really saying Look, no, no, no matter what it is, if it's the most important thing, if it's really affecting performance, then we should find a way to affect it. We should find a way to, to change it. And there's the tension between that and actually being kind to yourself and saying that you've done a, a good job and that You've done what you what you can, and that it's okay to stop, you know, of an evening or, or or whenever. And I think, actually, part of what's helped me is almost to be able to hold those two thoughts, even though they're contradictory, in my head at the same time, and have one as a kind of long term driver pushing forward on a strategic horizon, and the other. As a kind of short term kindness to myself to be able to say today, this is okay. And perhaps that actually resolves the tension because what's going to drive long term performance, what's going to drive effectiveness is a sustainable lifestyle with good mental health and a level of confidence. And perhaps that's what resolves that tension is knowing that in order to have that internal locus control and have that biggest impact that you can possibly have. You have to be in a good place and you have to feel good about yourself. And that can mean being kind to yourself and saying, if you've done four hours of emailing clients that you've never met and really you can't face any more, that maybe it's okay to watch another episode of stranger things on Netflix or whatever it is and really feel better about yourself.
0: I, I think a really powerful point, and I haven't watched the new Stranger Things yet, so don't don't spoil it for me if you have. Well, um, I have, but uh, well, yeah, I don't wouldn't
1: dream of spoiling it for anyone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I, I think there's a lot and and I know we, you know, your example was from the pandemic, but I, I think it plays out for anyone where that in you know, a that pipe, particularly at a partner, where that pipeline drying up is a concern, or even where, you know, client project doesn't go well. You know, we've all had Stakeholder who loves you moves on. Stakeholder who dislikes you comes in, and you know, you can deliver to whatever percentage you want, and it won't be enough. And actually, I think that kindness you know, to our conversation way back around actually what I said around sort of the consulting archetype. I think sometimes there is that kind of more is more, and actually, I think it's a really powerful point. I like say that that having that, I guess that sort of balancing thought of be kind to yourself. Like, yeah, you can send emails for 24 hours a day, but if you're then, you know, you've burnt yourself out, you're shattered, or, you know, you've worked too hard. I think that it's not good for you long-term. And it's interesting. One of my guests that I had on recently made that point of kind of consulting as a black hole. It, You know, no one's going to tell you to stop and it will just absorb. And you know, myself, I know I certainly had this when I was a junior consultant, kind of more was more until I was like, bugger this, I'm, you know, I'm done. And actually it's only now I'm a good ten years or maybe seven years older. You realize actually that self love, that sort of kindness, probably would have checked it. You know, did anyone care if I wrote an email at eight p.m.? Probably not. And I think for you know hearing someone like yourself, sort of at that partner level, is really powerful because if you've done enough of the right things, stuff will work out. And yeah, sometimes you do just need to put the laptop down. So I think it's a really good, really good point. Is there anything else you found? probably nothing as profound, but I won't make assumptions that has helped you as well. You know, that checking yourself and going watch Stranger Things, I think, is great advice. Is there anything else is as, as almost we've I guess we've you had that in the pandemic? We've now had the opposite, I imagine, where the world went from silence to, you know, there's make hay while well, the sun shines and there's a lot of hay to make. Maybe a better question is how have you carried that forward into a world where at the moment, there is abundance in the consulting industry. How have you fought the urge to say, oh, we'll sell that project and I'll just work Saturday, Sundays and you know, through the evening? How, how have you balanced that in the good time as well as the, the less good time?
1: I'm not entirely sure I've managed that <laughs> at, at all, to be honest. I think that for me, it's about making sure that I'm delivering a, a really great service to my clients and being completely honest about them about what I can do and when I can do it and what I can't. And I think the earlier that you've set that expectation that perhaps we're very busy at the moment, if you're not making a decision on this within this timeframe, then I'm afraid this is when we're going to be able to deliver that for you. And just being completely honest, not using it as a sleazy sales technique of like sign on the dotted line here or the chance is gone forever. But just really being honest, like, you know, this is the date when, as things currently stand, I would have the the bandwidth and have the have the team available to to support you. I think that's a great way of tempering the amount of um work that you take on. I think the other thing that we can do as a as a partnership is share some of the load. So when one of us is having a particularly purple patch and, uh, and there's lots of clients wanting um, wanting their help, then we can muck in and spread some of that load. And that's something that I've done for other partners in the in the recent past. And equally I've had other partners come in and deliver a piece of work to a high standard with someone that, you know, I've got an incredibly strong client relationship with and just knowing and having that confidence that, they're going to do a great job and that I can trust them to manage that relationship, keep that sweet and, and that I can come back to it when I've got a bit more bandwidth because they've done a good job. So that's important too.
0: Great points. I think talk a lot to, to the delegation and communications themes that have come out of this. Um, India is on the list. So I, I feel like I might need to go to get a story as good as, as the delegation story you had. but Maybe the message is better than the uh, what caused it. Well, Miriam, as is always the case, um, there's probably lots more places we could go, but I'm mindful of time. You mentioned you've got to get on the train shortly to go to your next client. So I'm going to bring us to our final questions. These are questions that I ask all of my guests and I love to get the similarities and differences in answers. So the first one is books, or I should broaden that out as we're, you know, given where we are in today's world, could be podcasts, could be YouTube, but what is the book or books you've found yourself giving or reading most and and why? So I've got kind of
1: three books that I'm going
0: to... Please, book. Uh, go should from, be books and, plural. Have as many as you want. For
1: different contexts and for, for different reasons. So the first is really coming back to the idea of finding the bottleneck and the power of that idea and how that can unlock incredible potential in, in businesses. So... It's a book called The Goal by Eli Goldratt. It was written quite a long time ago. And some of that shows, uh, particularly in the social aspects of the book, it's written as a novel, as a kind of manufacturing shop for thriller. Um, (laughs) And and there's bits of it that are, uh, are exceptionally cheesy. But I think it does a really great job of communicating why some of the very natural ways of thinking about a manufacturing operation can be deeply flawed and deeply harmful for the performance of that operation and, and the the well being of the people who are driving that operation. So that's um, particularly for people who have never worked in manufacturing but have uh, got a bit of an interest. That's that's very often one that I recommend, and it's one that we make uh, all of our new graduates starting uh, with us um, have a read. The second is uh, a book called Factfulness which is by a Danish doctor whose name I won't even try to pronounce. So, And that speaks to a number of different points, not around business, but around the world that we live in and how, how it's changed and actually how much progress has been made in the last period of time in terms of improving people's standards of living and improving the, the conditions of their lives and One of the things I I love about the book is that it's really concentrated around a number of different chapters, each of which is concentrating on a kind of natural human instinct or bias, which prevents us from seeing the world as it really is and understanding the facts of what's actually going on. And the reason I love it as a book to recommend to people is firstly, it's kind of social issues and development is something that I'm deeply passionate about. But actually, the mindsets and the natural biases that about facts and and how to counter them that uh, the author is describing uh, during the course of the book are the fundamental same mindsets and attitudes that we're very often helping to change and helping to improve with our clients that unlock the potential that we find. So, that's another favorite book of mine. And the last one is uh, A Closed and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers, which is science fiction. And I'm a massive sci-fi fan. And this is a book which I think gives an incredibly human story, which I feel very connected to in uh, a completely fantastical uh, setting. And uh, yeah, so completely unrelated to business, but... I'd feel remiss if I didn't recommend that book to
0: I realise there's an assumption this being a business podcast, there must all be business books. But now I'm, you know, I am yeah, I love getting the sort of non-business recommendations as well. And actually, we're just about to go on holiday. So one thing I am trying to do, Miriam, is read less business books because I, I find myself reading them and not having a novel. So A Closed and Common Orbit, I will go and have a look at. Is it part of a series? Is it a it, single? It, it is part of a series. It's, in fact, the second book in a trilogy. But I can assure
1: you that I read it as the first book from the trilogy that I read. There's very few points of uh, crossover which would spoil your
0: enjoyment of the first book if you would come back and read that. After starting with this one, and I really do recommend, You'd recommend this so one Recommend start. start with that. No, fantastic. I think the fatfulness as well sounds interesting. I the goal. I'm going to go and look up because I've read a book that's very similar to that. I don't think it was the goal, but something a similar sort of novel of the factory and how it was all improved. I will do that after, and I'll try and dig it out. And then the last question, and this could be a, rap, a sort of recap of some of the things we've talked about. It could be could be new points, but you have three people in front of you. One is. Just about to start their career in consulting, you know, yourself, just out of university. One is four or five years in, I sort of say manager grade, but there's somewhere they've got those options, you know, they've got a bit of experience. They're probably, you know, managing a team like like you were at that point. And then there's one who's just approaching partner. And and the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them?
1: Yeah. So I think I'm gonna give one piece of advice to the new person, which will equally apply to the other two. And then perhaps the same piece of advice to the, to, to the manager and the person approaching partner. So to the person who's just starting out, I think I'd try and offer some real advice around the way that they think about what they're doing. And we talked about it with Factfulness just then. We talked about the internal locus of control earlier on, but I think there are a number of core mindsets or or attitudes which can really accelerate your development as you go through your career and have, have massively benefited me going through mine. So, One that we talked about was assuming positive intent and saying, okay, is it really likely that this person has deliberately written this email as an attempt to politically undermine me personally, Uh, out of the 30 recipients that are on the email, or could it just be they're trying to do their very best to help the business and it has this unintended, that perhaps they should have thought about, but they haven't thought about political consequence for me and just coming in with that underpinning of, no, fundamentally, almost everyone is trying to do a great job. They're doing the best that they can with the resources that they have available to them and coming at it with that positive intent so, positive intent is one of them. Making decisions based on 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 real facts, and actually, one of the things that it took me a long time, longer than it should have, perhaps, to learn was actually to have the humility to see what's really actually happening, rather than coming in with confidence and some assumptions and, and a hypothesis about what's going on, and, and cherry picking and finding what I was expecting to find, and rather actually taking the time to really gather the information in an unbiased way and having the humility to recognize when you perhaps you do have a bias and to allow that, to allow yourself to to see what's really happening and to perhaps be surprised by what the right thing to do is, is going to be different from the hypothesis that you had maybe, maybe coming in. So that would be to the person who's just starting, although I'm sure there's aspects of that that would help at any level. And I think for the manager and the person approaching partner, I would just say, um, really put the client at the center of everything that you're doing. Really listen to them, really try and understand the situation that they find themselves in as a company. And also as that individual that you're speaking to at that moment, even if that's not The person who's paying the bill, even if that's not the person who's hired you, really taking the time each time that you have one of those interactions with a member of the client's team to say, right, how can I help this individual as much as I possibly can in this moment and at this time is something that I'd say has been the foundation of all of the success that I've had so far. And it's something that I'm constantly trying to remind myself and and do as much as I can, even in those really busy periods that we were talking about, just really being present, understanding the person that you're speaking to and, and understanding how you can
0: help them as best you can. Amazing, Miriam. Well, I think some great advice and I think a really nice place for us to finish. So thank you very much for today. I've really enjoyed it. And I didn't think we were going to be talking about, estonian lasers at all uh, and you would go to estonia i wasn't expecting lasers and everything else and i think some great stories and just really poignant points that people can take along that journey so thank you very much for today i think the only other question if anyone wants to find out more about yourself or wants to find out more about chartwell they've they've been sold on on the vision and wants to join where would you point them to where can they get in touch
1: brilliant so linkedin miriam hall uh partner at chartwell consulting will uh, will point you right and then our website is also a great place to find out more and get in touch which is www.chartwell-consulting.com
0: fantastic well so that people don't have to write those down as they listen i will put both in the show notes i put a link to your linkedin put a link to the website people if anyone's listening and wants to go and see those as miriam says you can find them there as well so thank you miriam and all that's left to say is enjoy the rest of your week thank you I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.